We can understand Dharma practice as being a path of opening. We see it in relationship to our bodies. It's a path of opening to our bodies. We go from a sense of the body as being something solid and compact with more refined attention, we begin to experience it as an energy field of changing sensations. We open to our senses in a more refined way. You've probably noticed at times a clearer perception of sound, of sight, of smell, of taste, just through the greater attentiveness. We open to our minds, to the whole range of thought and emotion. We open to the nature of silence, different kinds of silence. We open to the nature of awareness itself. After some time, it becomes clear that the way we practice is not a reaching out for experience. It's not a trying to get something, but rather a settling back into experience settling back into the natural unfolding of this mind-body process. But there's one strongly conditioned tendency of mind, and one which we identify with very often, that seems to freeze our experience of this flow of change, the flow of impermanence. Sort of like a deer gets frozen in the light of uh, headlights of a car. And this is the deeply conditioned pattern in us of fear. So tonight I'd like to explore the nature of fear, the things we're afraid of commonly, what it is that limits us, and also the possibilities of going beyond those limitations Because as we walk on this path of opening, in a careful and attentive way, what happens is that we reach edges or we reach boundaries of what we're comfortable with, of what we can easily accept, of what we can be with. We We reach boundaries of our comfort zone. And it's precisely at those edges or those boundaries that deeply conditioned fear begins to arise. It's illuminated. Now, it might be fear of pain, physical pain. It might be fear of different emotional or psychological states. It could be fear of change, fear of impermanence, fear of death, fear of the unknown. The problem is that each of these experiences, whether it's pain or different psychological emotional states or impermanence or death, each of these experiences are true. They are what is actually happening for us in those moments. And so we need to somehow understand our conditioned reaction of fear so we can go beyond the fear and experience directly for ourselves the nature of what's arising. So we're not pulled back, we're not fragmented. 
So in this way, working with fear really is an essential part of the path. So first, it's to look at what it is that we're afraid of, what limits us, where our boundaries are, and the possibilities of going beyond those limits. And the second is to look at the nature of fear itself. What is it as a mind state? Can we understand it in its own nature? Sometimes when I imagine the mind of a Buddha, and at this point it is just imagination, (laughs) but it's a pleasant thing to contemplate. When I imagine the mind of a Buddha, I imagine the mind without boundary. You know, we we practice and we reach our limit, we reach our boundary, we reach our edges, and then we relax a little bit and we open a little more and open more and open more. Just imagine what it would be like to have a mind without boundary, without limit. It would be a mind without fear. And so this is our practice. And I see each time we are playing at that edge and learning to open you know, to those things that uh, we might have fear about, I see it as very directly the path to Buddhahood, to the Buddha mind. So what are the things that we're afraid of? Very commonly, and I think we probably all share this to some extent or another, is a fear of physical pain. We're conditioned to avoid unpleasantness. We don't like it. We become impatient with discomfort. So how can we see this directly? I mean, we probably know this about ourselves. But we can notice it very directly when there is strong pain in the body, when pain arises, and we experience the inner contraction, the pulling away from the tightening behind those sensations. So we can really experience directly there the fear of opening to it. Becomes a question then, you know, when we're sitting, we're simply enduring it rather than opening to it. It's a very different mental state. It's interesting to watch just in the course of a day, not even when there's strong physical pain in the body and we feel the contraction, but as an experiment in the course of the day, pay attention to why you move. Why do we move? Any kind of movement. You know, why do we get up from a sitting posture? Why do we stop walking? Why do we go to eat? Why do we go to the bathroom? Why do we lie down? Why do we make these slight adjustments or shifts of position. Very often, we're moving as a way of avoiding dukkha. In the Buddhist text, it talks of how movement masks dukkha. Movement masks suffering. We're moving to alleviate some kind of discomfort. But we usually don't think of it like that. We're usually so seduced by what it is we're going towards that we don't see the underlying motivation. If we're willing to pay attention 
and are there for those moments of discomfort and then see your experiment with different possible responses, it becomes more possible, at least at times, not to move out of conditioned habit as a way of avoiding the pain, but actually to feel it, to be with it. This is a very direct insight into the first noble truth. But what I've seen in myself so often, and in many yogis, we'd all like to have transforming insights of the truth of dukkha without ever feeling anything unpleasant. But that's not where the, that's not where the insight comes from. It's not an intellectual. It's really seeing it. It's feeling it. It's opening to it. Yes, this is dukkha. So we can practice this in very ordinary ways. Just as we watch the movements during the course of a day, as well as in times of intense sensation. We can also notice fear of pain in the very strong tendency of mind to have fear not actually of what's happening, but fear of anticipated pain. You know, where we sit and we're getting this little twinge in our knee and it's totally fine, but then the mind imagines what it's going to be like in half an hour or an hour. And in our imagination, it becomes too much. So we pull back, we get afraid of it, we move. You know the oft-quoted, by me, line of Mark Twain, some of the worst things in my life never happened. Because we live in the world of our imagination so much. And we conjure up the painful feelings and then respond to that. So it's a helpful habit to look at. It's also instructive to see how often our fear of pain or our fear of discomfort feeds into desire. These two, these two aspects are very related to each other. It's often our fear of pain that drives desire. I had one very striking, somewhat ridiculous example this early on in my practice. I was actually sitting with uh, Mahasi Sayadaw in England. It was a small retreat at this Buddhist center uh, outside of Oxford. And every morning for breakfast, they served the same thing. They served tea and porridge and toast and fruit. That was the same menu every morning. So I'd come down and I took... my tea and some fruit and cereal and two pieces of toast. Then I got halfway through the meal and I realized I didn't need two pieces of toast. I didn't want it. I wasn't hungry. So I left one piece of toast. Next morning came down, same breakfast, took my porridge, fruit, tea, two pieces of toast. Same thing. It was full by the second piece, didn't take it. Third day came down, same breakfast, went through the line, took my porridge, fruit, tea, two pieces of toast. 
So at a certain point, it just seemed so ridiculous to me, and I was looking, what am I doing? And I saw that what was operating was this fear, it was this just-in-case mind. Just in case I'm hungry, I, I need the piece of toast on my plate. Yeah, and it was this fear of starvation. It's ridiculous you know, to be driven by that, especially when we know from experience that it's not even true. But the mind, is, as we know, uh, is very strongly habituated. We get caught in these patterns. So when we're driven by desire over and over again, it might be helpful to see, is there some fear driving that desire? Now, working with physical pain, as most of you know, can be a very powerful object of meditation. It's a very good object of concentration, because when there's strong pain, the mind is not wandering much. You know, it captures our attention. Years ago, I had such a striking example of this. I was out with some friends in California and going someplace in the car, and I got in and I was sitting in the middle, you know, in the middle seat, and I had my arm around the top of the seat, and the person who got in after me closed the door and it was on my finger. And it was a big car and a heavy door, it was really painful, you know, and then, you know, the blood formed under the nail and the pressure. It was, so all night, it was just this incredibly painful, throbbing feeling. But there was nothing I felt I could do that night, and so I was just with it. I was just watching the pain. I couldn't do anything else. It was so, so strong. And it was amazing. By the end of the night, my mind was so concentrated and so clear and so light it was not a problem. I still went to take care of it. It's not that I was looking to keep the pain, but it was so interesting to see that the mind can get very concentrated on the pain if it can open to it without fear. So as you know, this is our practice. When discomfort comes, when we are experiencing the first noble truth, can we open to it? Can we feel it? Can we relax into it? There are some profound lessons in this. This is not an insignificant uh, training. Because as we settle into the awareness of the pain, the awareness of the discomfort, we begin to see in a very clear way it's changing selfless nature. It becomes so obvious that these sensations are not subject to our will, are not subject to our control. If they were, we would say, pain, go away. But it doesn't happen like that. And so we get a very direct insight into anatta, into selflessness, into the ungovernableness, that everything is following its own law. So often, with pain or discomfort, there's the sense of us doing something wrong. And we've done something wrong, and that's why I'm experiencing it. 
Buddhist teaching is something quite different than that. Learning to be <coughs> with the fear in our mind, learning to open to the pain or the discomfort in our practice is very good training for illness and for dying. You know, here you might be sitting and there's a pain or discomfort, and yeah, here we can move, we shift a little bit, the pain goes away. But there will be many times in our lives, whether it's due to accident or illness or a dying process, which very likely will be painful. Will we have trained ourselves to be able to be open to that without fear, without contraction, so I see the opportunities that come in practice you know, as a very profound kind of training. Now when you read the suttas, often the Buddha is speaking to people who are dying and they use very graphic language you know, for the kind of sensations that the body feels at that time. You know, it feels like the head is being cracked open into... 15 pieces and racking winds in the body and all that. And the Buddha's response you know, to those situations, you know, in the text is, he comments, even though your body you know, is filled with this strong pain, this racking pain, can your mind remain peaceful? Can your mind remain free of desire and aversion? So this is the possibility that he's reminding us of. We can also turn our attention, and this this really becomes an interesting part of our practice, to that which is knowing the pain. What is the nature of the knowing mind? That which is aware. I know that you have some sittings where you go, you know, in the same sitting you go from strong pain to strong bliss or strong happiness. But I've always found it really interesting, particularly in those sittings where the contrasts are very strong. And then looking at the knowing mind, the knowing mind is just the same. Whether, it knows, whether it's pain is the object or really pleasant sensations as the object, the quality of the knowing, the quality of the awareness, is exactly the same. I don't know, I find that, I find that quite interesting. Because it's as if the knowing, the awareness, doesn't care. It doesn't care what the object is, because its function is just to know. So if you think of the awareness, the knowing as the openness of an open window. You know, it's not even the glass. The glass is already too much. It's just the openness. And that everything is seen or heard or perceived through that openness. We begin to get a sense of the possibility of being with experience without fear, without reaction. But we need to start small. You know, we need to train ourselves gradually.
Now, I've mentioned, I think, a couple of times uh, Henry David Thoreau in the time when he was dying. He died very young. He died at the age of 44. He had TB. Uh, but he had this amazing wisdom. It was really quite extraordinary, the way he was holding death as being a totally natural part of life. He said some extraordinary things. He said, and this was you know, in, the, in the, his dying days, he said, there is as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health, as the mind always conforms to the condition of the body. That's pretty remarkable. There is as much comfort in perfect disease as in perfect health. Because the mind conforms to the condition of the body. The mind simply knows whatever the condition of the body is. So to work skillfully with pain and discomfort, I think it's helpful to recognize the different kinds of pain that arise. So we will know, can assess what the appropriate response is. Some kind of pain is a danger signal. If you put your hand in fire, you don't want to just say burning, 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 burning. There's a signal there, and we want the wisdom to be able to take our hand out of the fire. So we want to see where the pain is actually a danger signal and telling us something. There's the pain of feeling the accumulated tensions that we carry. Now, almost all of us, through the course of our lives, have accumulated a greater or lesser amount, and usually greater, amount of tension that we're carrying, that we're holding in different parts of the body. We come in practice and we sit still and we get undistracted and we open to that tension. We begin to feel the discomfort of it. But that opening to it is precisely the space of unwinding it. So the more we can be with that, without fear, without aversion, there's actually an unwinding of the energy knots. There's the pain of healing crises. Now, there's so many stories uh, of people through meditation going through a painful healing crisis of some disease and it actually becomes a healing process. Upandita, one, one of his visits here, he spent a whole evening just regaling us with stories of people having cured various diseases, you know, into centers in Burma, through going, by going through the pain, you know, of that, of that particular healing process. Uh, and it's not to say that meditation will always cure every disease we have, which is not very likely or true, but it certainly can happen, you know, and it's one kind of pain that we can feel. We feel pain of old traumas to the body. You know, things that we've experienced in the past and they begin to surface as a way of release. And there are also stages in meditation 
where unpleasant feelings predominate. It's just the nature of that stage of insight. And so again, it's not that there's something wrong and it's not that there's some problem with the body. It's just if we're at that particular stage of practice, we are going to be feeling unpleasant feelings. So knowing that also can help us just relax and open and be with it. How we relate to the unpleasantness, to the painful feelings that occur, illuminate for us a lot about how we relate to other unpleasant situations in our lives. Are we able to tolerate? Are we able to be with? Are we able to open to unpleasantness? Or do we tighten? Do we contract? Do we defend against them? You know, one of the clearest examples of this for me happened some time ago uh, when I was flying from New York to uh, Denver. It's on the plane. The plane was fully uh, booked, you know, so it was really crowded. We're sitting at we're sitting at the gate, and then the captain comes on. You know, that's always a bad sign. You know, if he's coming on before we take off. And he says, the winds in Denver were too strong. There was too much weight on the plane. So all the passengers who had connecting flights had to disembark because they had to to reduce the weight of the plane. It wasn't safe to land. So needless to say, people were not thrilled about that, especially the people who had to leave and make other plans. But this one guy got up, and he was furious. And he was yelling at this flight attendant, you know, and I was sitting there watching, and at first I just felt a lot of aversion towards him. But then I got interested. And, okay, what's happening here? You know, and I sort of was feeling it energetically. And I realized that he, like everybody else, was feeling all this frustration, but that he had almost no ability to hold it. The frustration was overwhelming. He could not open to the unpleasantness of it and just be with it. And so it was just venting it completely inappropriately. To the degree that we can be with unpleasantness, it's okay, it's unpleasant, nobody likes it, but to the degree that we can be with it, be open to it, then there's a possibility both of us remaining in a much greater place of ease and also responding appropriately rather than just acting out. Okay, so all of this has to do with fear of physical pain, fear of discomfort. We might also have fear of certain memories or images in the mind that are painful. You know, and they might be of specific events in our lives, really painful events that start to come up in memory. Or they might be archetypal images, you know, just impersonal images you know, representing the forces of hatred or rage or whatever it is. I remember one time I was doing an intensive meta retreat. And of course, one of the 
benefits of metta is that you're supposed to sleep easily and wake easily and have pleasant dreams. Well, I was doing this metta, and I had the worst dream I've ever had in my life. It was completely horrible and disgusting and perverse, and I couldn't believe it. You know, and it was a great lesson in what the mind contains. It just felt like it were these archetypal images of evil. You know, and that's what was coming up in the mind. So there can be fear of being with these images, or more personal ones, you know, things that have actually happened to us. But if we can practice, just as with physical pain, opening to these images, really being mind, it's, it is just image. There's actually a way of deconditioning all the associated emotions. I had one friend uh, who had been in the Vietnam War as a medic, and, this, and he came back to the States just when we began teaching in the, in the 70s. And he came on this two-week retreat. And he said when he first came that since he came back from the war, he had just been having nightmares, waking up screaming every single night that he'd been back from all the horrible things that he witnessed. And they, of course, were coming up on the retreat. But this was his first, his first introduction to meditation, and so he was practicing as these images came up and all these feelings. He was just watching and watching and watching and noting and noting. And I saw him after the retreat. So he spent two weeks of this, very intense. He said that by the end of the two weeks... He had no more nightmares at night. You know, that whole huge reservoir of very charged image got deconditioned, got cleansed through the practice, through the practice of awareness, of mindfulness, of just opening to it, letting it wash through. So there's this tremendous deconditioning process, purifying process if we can find that space of mindful awareness rather than closing off in fear. This fear not only of physical pain or different images, either personal or archetypal, but I think we're all familiar also with fear of certain emotions. Certain emotions are very painful. And at times, as they come up, we can see that reaction of withdrawal. We don't want to feel them. We're afraid of feeling them. And so again, our practice is learning. And it can be a gradual, a gradual process. Can we open to the feelings, to the emotions that are at our limit? our edge, our boundary, you know, of what's okay, of what's comfortable. It might be feelings of rage. It might be feelings of hatred. It might be feelings of unworthiness. It might be feelings of abandonment. It might be feelings of jealousy. You know, we each have our own constellation. 
as long as we're unwilling to open to these, as long as fear keeps us separate from them, for so long we live in a very fragmented way. We live in insecurity. Because there's this great inner pressure then to keep these feelings away. You know, they're there, but when they start to come up, if we haven't developed an ability to open, there's that pressure to keep them away. I don't want to feel it. It's too much. And in this non-acceptance of them, what happens is we create a persona. We create a self-image, you know, which we present to ourselves and to others. Oh, I'm a kind of person who never gets angry. I'm a person who doesn't feel this, this, and this. So we start living through that persona and then always looking for validation in other people's eyes because we really haven't accepted the range of our own inner world. I saw this very clearly in the early days of my practice with Saida Upandita. You know, because he's actually gotten softer and mellower over the years. The first year he came, it was pretty fierce, you know, and go in for the interviews, and I just noticed this tense. First there was just this regression to about the level of a three-year-old, you know, going in, and what I noticed in my mind was just how difficult it was in that context, in the pressure of that context, to be completely simple, just to say, okay, this is what's happening. You'd think it would be the simplest thing in the world to do that, but it wasn't, because there was this whole inner thing going on of not accepting, in a full way, my own defilements, you know, and wanting approval and this and that, and so always kind of, you know, shaping the report. But slowly, just as, you know, over time, and I saw myself doing this, it became easier and easier to actually be accepting of the, the range of defilements in my mind. You know, so instead of feeling ashamed or judging or feeling judged, they just came, oh yeah, this is what's present. This is what's present. And at one point I went in for an interview and I was just reporting some simple experience of being with pain in my body or something, and he proceeded to list, you know, ten different defilements that were going on. Well, at that point, I just started to laugh because first it was funny. And I had gotten to the place where, yeah, that is what's going on. I didn't have to defend anything. And it was such a freer place, you know, such an easier place. And I think for all of us, it's a real turning point where we become more interested in seeing the kalesas, seeing the defilements, than not seeing them. So now when things come up in the mind, it's like, oh boy, (laughs) look at that. I can actually learn something. So I want to read a poem. You you may be familiar with this one, but it expresses this idea very well. It's by Rumi. 
um, it's called the guest house. You know, and this, this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. They may be cleaning you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Well, that would be a wonderful attitude to have, just to greet everything that comes as an honorable visitor. So we learn to recognize the range of feelings and it's not denying them and it's not suppressing them And in the seeing of them, we find that we no longer are driven to simply act them out. We create this inner space. One of the great transforming insights of meditation practice is as we open to the range of emotion without fear, we begin to see more deeply not only into the psychological aspects, but we also begin to see their empty nature. When we really look carefully, we see the impersonal nature of these emotions. They're arising out of conditions, just like clouds arise in the sky. Certain conditions come together, a cloud appears. The conditions change, the cloud dissolves. The emotions don't belong to anybody. They're not self. They're not I. Of course, sometimes these clouds are great thunder clouds. Big thunderstorms are happening. And there's wind and there's lightning and there's rain and it's very dramatic. So there are some big storms that come through and yet still they are essentially empty. Empty of self. So we begin to learn this and as we learn it, there's much more space just to be with it, to let them pass through, to let them wash through, kind of the open sky of our minds. There can be fear of physical pain, there can be fear of images, powerful images that arise in the mind, there can be fear of different emotions that we don't want to be with, that we don't want to open to because they're too painful. There can be fear of change, you know, fear of impermanence, fear of loss, fear of death. We see so often in our lives you know, of our looking for permanence, looking for security in permanence. Now, let my body not change. Let my relationships stay just the way they are. Let my little world and maybe the bigger world stay stable. But it's not like that. You know, and part of the practice of Vipassana, of seeing clearly, is seeing that there is no stability, that there is no security 
impermanence. One of the lines that we find so often in the suttas and people often get enlightened hearing it. So listen carefully. It's really simple. It's not complicated. It's just, but if we really got it, that would be it. Whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. Sariputra heard that and he got enlightened. Okay, try again. (laughs) Whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. There is nothing which is stable. If we really got that, we wouldn't hold on. We wouldn't be attached. The change, the decay, the falling apart, the deconstruction of condition-constructed things is inevitable. It is just the nature of things. We saw this so clearly with the forest refuge. We spent all those years planning and visioning it and designing it and fundraising for it and construction and building. It was amazing. I think maybe from the first day of opening, it needed repair. (laughs) You know, already things were, you know, this was torn or this was coming up or this needed cleaning or whatever. And I thought, you think we would have gotten a little break? (laughs) But it's just not like that. Things are continually decaying. They're continually changing. You know, we see how much we hold on to this mind-body, try to hold on to this as being stable, having some security. And we don't, we don't often allow ourselves to see just the momentariness. There's, there's no more stability in this mind and body than in the world outside. Sometimes, and this is really bizarre, when we have a lot of fear of things changing, sometimes we have fear of things not changing. You know, there's some neurotic pattern in our mind that's driving us nuts, or some pain in the body. The whole world is changing, the whole universe is changing, but not this. You know, we have this fear that this is going to be here forever. So we want to take a look at that. And most deeply, I think, our fear of change you know, is, is highlighted uh, in the fear of death, you know, which is like the great unknown. And so for many people, this is very deep, this is very strong. What's so odd in that, at least in this culture, maybe in many others, people find that talking about death or reflecting on death is morbid. You know, it's not what you would have a dinner conversation about, typically. You know, people don't like, to, don't like to consider it. They don't like to reflect on it. And yet the Buddha is saying, this is something that we should reflect on every day. You know, the truth of this. It is so important 
And it's such a powerful guide for our lives. Probably remember uh, back in the 70s, I guess, or 80s, the books by Carlos Castaneda you know, about the teachings of Don Juan, the shaman. Well, it's some beautiful, really beautiful writing and teachings in that. He wrote this, this one piece that is so uh, applicable to our lives. Don Juan asked me to tell him, he was, this is Carlos speaking, what had been the most natural reaction I had in moments of stress, frustration, and disappointment before I became an apprentice. He said that his own reaction had been wrath. I told him that mine had been self-pity. Though you are not aware of it, you had to work your head off to make that feeling a natural one, he said. By now there is no way for you to recollect the immense effort that you needed to establish self-pity as a feature of your island. Self-pity bore witness to everything you did. It was just at your fingertips, ready to advise you. Death is considered by a warrior to be a more amenable advisor, which can also be brought to bear witness on everything one does, just like self-pity or wrath. Obviously, after an untold struggle, you had learned to feel sorry for yourself. But you can also learn, in the same way, to feel your impending end. And thus you can learn to have the idea of your death at your fingertips. As an advisor, self-pity is nothing in comparison to death. This is a practice where we really remember, we reflect on the truth of this. And as we do, it deconditions the fear. We just see the reality, the truth of this change. It's a reminder to let the awareness of this great truth of impermanence, the death of this body, to really let it in rather than to close off or to fear it. One of my favorite lines, which, again, I've mentioned often, uh, of Thoreau, when he was dying, and uh, his Aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God, and Thoreau replied, I didn't know we had ever quarreled, Aunt. You know, here's a mind that has just opened to the truth of the situation, the truth of life and death, the truth of change. Of course, he did it through his profound insight into the natural world. So we talked about the things we might be afraid of, of pain, of different images or thoughts in the mind, of certain intense painful emotions of impermanence, of change, of loss, of death. So the question then is, if fear arises, you know, at different times in response to these experiences, how can we work with the fear itself? How can we work directly with that emotion?
we need to recognize it, we need to recognize the fear, and we need to come to a place of acceptance. That it's okay to feel the fear. And in working with fear a lot in my practice, a major turning point for me was when I was working with it for days, intense primal fear, not fear of any particular content, just it was on this energetic primal level. And I was noting, 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 but really the noting was a pushing away. But at a certain point, I was doing some walking meditation, and something shifted, and my mind reflected that shift in the thought, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And in that moment, I understood what acceptance was about. If this is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. I could feel the release in the heart. Instead of contracting, instead of pushing it away, instead of not wanting to feel it, it was that moment of just opening to it. It's okay. And it was quite amazing. In that moment, that whole mass of fear that had been there for so long just washed through. It was like one of those magic moments. It came through the power of genuine acceptance. What's so interesting about our minds is that in this regard there's no fooling it. You know, the mind knows whether it's really accepting or it's a pretense of acceptance. And if it's a pretense of acceptance, nothing shifts, nothing happens. We're still locked in to that fear, you know, to that holding pattern. But when the mind really drops into openness, this is okay, just let me feel it. We get over our fear of fear, and then there can be movement. Often we're not open to fear because of our assumptions about its effect. What will we be like if we're open to fear? We think often that it will weaken us or debilitate us in some way, and so we kind of have this pretense of strength at keeping the fear away. This was, this was illuminated very uh, clearly in one retreat that I was teaching for lawyers and law students as part of a contemplative law project. And there was this second-year law student who was describing how in an ad- this adversarial legal situation, you know, which can get very intense and very adversarial, he said he needed his anger in order not to feel the fear. Because if he felt the fear, he felt it would weaken him. And it was so interesting to me, you know, that his fear of fear rebounded in feeling he needed to get angry, you know, as, as a source of his strength. It's not very sustaining. And it's very, as we know, deleterious. So I don't think they were teaching mindfulness in the law school. You know, that it's actually much easier to allow the fear to be there, to to just be with the fear, to be accepting of it. It doesn't mean not acting. It doesn't mean not responding. Years ago, I was teaching in Hawaii, uh, on Kauai, 
And on the north shore of Kauai, at one end, there's this incredible hike. It's called the Nepali Coast into the Kalalau Valley. So it's an 11-mile hike, a beautiful, I mean, it's just pristine Hawaii. So we got in this long hike. We're, we're just camping and living on the beach, and there were these cliffs. And one of my friends, who had grown up in Hawaii and very, you know, very at home in that environment, said, you know, let's climb the cliffs. And I looked up. And it's not like there was a path up the cliffs. You know, it was just like handholds and footholds. And it was frightening. To me, it was frightening. You know, it was not at all easy or comfortable. But I had done enough practice. I mean, it was something I kind of wanted to do. You know, but the fear was quite strong. But I'd done enough practice to see that even though the fear is there, I can still do it. The fear doesn't need to limit action if we can be accepting of the fear. If we're not accepting of the fear, if that's, I can't bear this emotion, then we'll do everything to protect ourselves from feeling it. And so we live very defensively. We live very circumscribed lives. I don't want to do anything that will call forth fear. So it's very powerful when we shift that a bit and we see, yeah, the fear's okay. And really, for me, redefines courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the willingness to act even when fear is present. The fear is okay. It's okay that it's there, and let me do what feels appropriate. So at times it's helpful to push our edges a bit, to push our edges in the practice, maybe sit a little longer, or sit without moving. Goenkaji used to teach uh, the vow hours, where you would come in for a sit and you would take a vow not to move for that hour. Well, in the beginning, especially, that was really intense. You know, the pain would be there, the knees would be really painful, the back painful. You're taking this vow not to move. Sharon says she always moved. (laughs) (laughs) Very often I didn't, but really had to deal with a lot you know, that was going on inside. It was it was pushing an edge. We've softened things a little bit in our suggestion. Maybe not a vow hour, take vow a vow half hour, a vow fifteen minutes. Whatever, you know, you feel is workable, but you make that resolution. Okay, for this time let me die. I'm not gonna move. And just see what happens, see what comes up. You know, we'll sleep less. You know, be willing to open to more intense emotions. On the other side, it's also helpful to know when things are too much. You know, when things are coming up too powerfully, we've lost our balance, when it's important to be able to retreat a bit, to regain the balance so that we can again open. So both sides are important. In addition to accepting the fear, 
it's also helpful to see that fear itself is just another insubstantial mind state. It's just a mind state. It comes, it's there, it's strong, it manifests in, in its own way. But it's not I, it's not self. We don't have to create a story, a self-story around it. I'm such a fearful person, I'll never work this out. I need 15 years of therapy to untie it all. It's just a mind state. If we can remember that and practice seeing it in that way, it makes it much easier to become friends with the fear. The Dalai Lama had some excellent advice, as he usually does. Someone asked him, how can we work with deep fears? He said, if you have some fear of pain or suffering, you should examine if there is anything you can do about it. If you can, there is no need to worry. If you cannot do anything about it, then there is also no need to worry. (laughs) That's very good advice. I'll just spend a few minutes in closing in talking about one of the great allies in working with fear, and that is the quality of trust. So often we put our trust in things outside of ourselves. We put trust in other people, we put trust in the environment, we put trust in society. But for many people, situations arise where this trust is shattered. You know, the relationships break up, or the world doesn't behave the way we'd like it to behave. You know, in teaching the people of color retreats over these last years, and really hearing firsthand the stories of the immense amount of injustice that takes place in our society, and it was a real eye-opener for me. You know, here we generally place trust in how society works or should work, and yet for many people it doesn't work that way. And there's a real lack of trust, betrayal of trust. You know, and today, of course, is the second year anniversary of 9-11. You might not have noticed that it was September 11th tonight, but, you know, for many, perhaps most people in our culture, that was a turning point where we really saw that the world we had believed in, in some fundamental way, was not that way at all. You know, there was a fundamental level of insecurity that came from that. But these situations, realizing that things outside ourselves are not a place of reliability, of trust, These are exactly the situations that the Buddha pointed to. That's the place where we can look further, we can investigate further. Where is a true refuge? And if it's not in things outside of ourselves. And the oldest recitation in Buddhism, and one which we do before each talk, the recitation of the refuges, really what does it mean? We take refuge in the Buddha, 
we are taking refuge in the possibility of awakening. This is a great, a great thing. Most people in the world do not know that there's even a possibility that awakening, freedom from suffering, is possible. When we take refuge in Buddha, we are taking refuge, we're placing our trust in this possibility of freedom. It is possible. When we take refuge in the Dharma, we are taking refuge in the truth of our experience, the actuality of our experience, not our stories about it. When we take refuge in the Sangha, you know, on one level, it's refuge in the monks and nuns and beings, you know, wise beings in the world. But really, on a deeper level, we're taking refuge in the understanding, yes, if these people did it, I can do it too. It's not just for the Buddha. Many people have walked this path. Many people have liberated their hearts and minds. We take refuge in the Sangha, we're placing our trust in the fact that we also can do this. We can walk this path. So I'd like to close with a poem that's just, it captures the feeling of this place of trust. It's not particularly a Buddhist poem, but I think it has a lot of beauty in it about fear and despair and trust. It's called The Peace of Wild Things by Wendell Berry. He said, when despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in the beauty on the water and where the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Let's sit for just a few minutes. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and I'm free. May the merit of our practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.